Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In April 1985, my grandfather retired from working at General Motors. So he was a a farmer, but also he worked for GM. And on the screen here is a note that one of his co-workers gave him as a commendation at his retirement. And the note reads, it's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. My grandpa had many gifts and abilities, but what these individuals, and particularly this gentleman, recognized was that he had the quality of Christ-likeness. This is the desire that we as Christians have, is that those around us would see Christ in us, that we would stand before Christ someday, and he would say, your life reflected my life. This is the most important desire that we should have every day, and that is to be like Christ. Well, the question is, how can we be like Christ? Like, how can we have his love? How can we trust like he trusted? How can we love and care for people like he loved and cared for people? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, teach us how God transforms us to be like Christ. And let's do some review. Let's remember that God transforms us from the inside out. That first, God must transform our very nature. We are sinners, and therefore, sinners by nature, and therefore, he must change our nature to be like Christ. That takes place at conversion. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work to save you, the grace of God transforms your very nature. You're born again. You're raised with Christ. Your position now before God is holy. You are a saint. You are justified. You are redeemed. You are adopted. That's who you are in Christ. That's important. We spent a week or two on that. And then then next, throughout your Christian life, God continues to practically transform you through what the scripture calls sanctification. And it's through the, and God sanctifies us through the renewal of our minds. The renewal of our inner person takes place through the renewal of our mind. So how does God change your desires and your behaviors and your habits? And he does it through the renewal of our mind. In fact, if you were to read through Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, you would notice this doctrinal thread that's weaved throughout, and that is the renewal of the mind. I'm not going to read through all those verses, but I want you to look at Ephesians 4, verse 17. I want you to notice this thread. Look at verse 17. That the Gentiles, the world's mind is futile. So there's the idea of the mind has a problem. Verse 18, their understanding is darkened. That's the mind. They are ignorant. Verse 19, their minds are controlled by sensual desires. So that's the problem with the Gentiles, those of the world. How about... How about verse 20? But we have learned Christ. Verse 21, we heard, we were taught the gospel. That is something we receive with our mind, right? Verse 22, the old self is deceived, so the mind is tricked by the deception of our desires. Verse 23, God renews our 
minds. Verse 24, the new person is created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. And notice it's from the truth. It comes from the truth. And so the, the new person must be governed by truth in his mind. And then if you notice in verse 25 through 32, that what you, you are to put off the old deeds of the flesh, you're to put on Christ's likeness. But in the middle of that, within that, is we are to have our minds renewed with the truth of who God is. So, so with, within every put off and put on, there is a truth statement. There's the scripture, there's the knowledge of God that restores our thinking so that we can do what God calls us to do. So notice verse 25, you put off lying and you put on telling the truth. Why? Why should you do that? Verse 25, we're members of one another. In other words, God has united you in Christ as members of his body. How about verse 26 and 27? You're to put off out of control sinful anger. You're to put on dealing with sin in a timely way before the sun goes down. And why is that? Verse 27. What's the truth that renews your thinking? You don't want to give an opportunity for the devil to have a foothold in your life. Or how about verse 28? You're to put off theft taking things that aren't yours. You're to put on doing hard work. Why should you work hard? What's the truth that renews your thinking? Well, verse 28, God gave you a job. Why? So that you would give. See, God is a giving God. He works to give grace. And so therefore you should give. That's why he's given you a job. You should work hard for that reason. Verse 29, you should put off corrupt words. You should put on words that build people up. Why is that? So you can minister grace. In other words, God is a God of grace. His words minister grace. Therefore, that's why God gave you a mouth. So that renews your thinking to think about how you should therefore act. Verse 31, put off bitterness. Put on kindness and forgiveness. Why is that? The end of verse 32. Because God is kind. Because God is forgiving. And if God is kind and forgiving, so too must you. And the point is that God's means... To change you is through the renewal of the mind. And so we're talking about transformed by the renewing of your mind. And our text this morning is actually just going to be one verse. And it's going to be more of a topical sermon this morning. Studying this idea of the renewal of the mind. So look at Ephesians 4.23. And if you're just joining us this time, this, for the first time this Sunday then I want you to know this has been a series we've been in. We've already studied pretty intensely Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. So we're going to dive into verse 23. Notice Ephesians 4, 23 reads, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Or again, if you remember last week, we said really a, a, a literal translation of that would be this. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. So that those words being renewed, it's a passive. It's something that God is doing to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a present tense. It's ongoing. It's every day. This is something that God is doing in your life on a continual basis. Every day you need breath for your physical life. And every day you need to be renewed by the breath of God. That's the Holy Spirit for your spiritual life. And so, and notice in verse 23, it's a renewing of your mind. 
This deals with your thoughts. This deals with your beliefs. This deals with your ideas, your knowledge, your discernment, your meditations. And it's re- you're renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about that inner attitude of your mind. It's talking about receiving God's truth. It's, it's opening the door to God's truth to come in and rule your life. And ultimately, what the renewed mind is, what verse 23 is, it, it is the mind of Christ. Do you realize that? What's happening in verse 23 is God is so renewing you that you think, you believe, you perceive like Jesus Christ. A parallel passage to this would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the scripture describes the natural man, that's the person without the Holy Spirit, that's a person that is not not a believer in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, the person without the Spirit does not receive, he really cannot receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. His mind can't perceive it. He's not able to even understand it. So that's the world. That's how they are think. It's, it's, it's clouded. It's, it's they're distorted in the thinking. I can't see the reality of God. But verse 16 says, but you, that's those of us with the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, you have the mind of Christ. So what is that mind like? What is the mind of Christ? Well, if you are reading through the Bible with us, you are going through the Gospels right now, and one of the things that you're probably recognizing is when you read about Jesus, as you see over and over that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and you see You observe, you read that Jesus is speaking the words of God. Jesus is full of the scriptures, isn't he? He's talking about Lot's wife. He's talking about David said this. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus went into the wilderness and he was full of the Holy Spirit. And when he was tempted, what came out of Jesus' mouth? It was the word of God. What do you think Jesus was thinking about for 40 days in the wilderness? Do you think he was looking at lizards and thinking how cool that is? Like, I, I suppose that what happened to Jesus is through those 40 days, he was so meditating on God's word that when the Satan came to tempt him, the first thing came out was scripture, right? Because that's how he thought. In fact, right after Luke chapter 4 verse 14 says, he came out of the wilderness and he was He was under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes into Nazareth, his hometown, goes in the synagogue. And what does he do? He speaks the scripture. And so what you see with Jesus is Jesus is under the control of the power of the Holy Spirit. His mind thinks according to God's word. And therefore, Jesus faithfully fellowships with his father. He truly knows him. He obediently obeys him. He truly obeys him and he truly enjoys his father. That is the mind of Christ. And so I put this in your notes. I put this in the screen. If you don't have notes in front of you, please write this down because this is a summary of what the renewed mind is. This is the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? What does a renewed mind look like? Well, it's your mind controlled and changed by the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit, with God's words, so you may truly know, obey, and 
desire God. This is a continual thing. The Holy Spirit is continually changing you. He's continually controlling your thoughts. And he does it with the word of God. In fact, look down in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23. You, you see, he says, you are being renewed. It's the idea of restoration, making something that was old, making it something that is new. This is a restoration process. Some of you in here have restored, restored old antique cars. And some of you like to go around to those car shows, you know, and you see those cars. Aren't they kind of cool? In fact, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving down the road and you see one of those classic cars come by and it's been completely redone, you're going, wow, that's pretty cool, huh? What does it take to restore a car like that? If you were to see a classic car sitting in a parking lot and, or in someone's field and it's been there for 20, 30, 40 years, what would it take? Well, first you've got to strip it down, right? You've got, you got to remove the wiring and maybe the engine. You've got to rebuild the engine. You've got to strip off the paint. The point is you've got to rebuild the whole thing. You, you dismantle it first. You take out the old. Then you replace it with the new. You rebuild the engine, you rewire the car, you paint it, you prime it. The point is that restoration means you take out the old and you put in the new. And so picture something like that when you think about what the Holy Spirit is doing with your mind on a daily basis. He's removing the old thoughts, the old ideas about God and about yourself. He's removing those old beliefs and he's restoring your mind to think like Christ, to believe like Christ, really to view God like Christ viewed and views God. So what are those old thoughts? Well, look in verse 22. You can see in verse 22, those old thoughts follow the desires of deception. In other words, they're deceiving thoughts. They're thoughts that are full of lies about God. In fact, how do you counter deception? If someone's lying to you, how do you counter that? You counter it with truth. That's why in verse 21, he says, as the truth is in Jesus, Jesus is the truth. We've talked about this. He's the incarnate truth. His word is the inspired truth. So what you need is the truth to restore your mind to think according to the way that God intended your mind to think, to think like Christ. So the Holy Spirit is restoring a mind that is able to think and what are you able to think about? You're able to think about God in a way that's true. It's actually restoring a, the reality of God, the reality of who God is. And think about that, because our world, people walk around and they have a distorted view of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that Satan, the God of this world, small g, Satan blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So the problem we have in this world is we have people that don't have a correct perception of God. Like, think about it this way. If, if I was on the stage and you saw a fire starting back here, and that fire started billowing up and started glowing, and it was starting to get out of control, what would you do? Well, you probably would get up and warn people, probably call 911. If it was raging, you would run out of here, right? In other words, if you perceive this to be a true reality, then you would do something about it. And see, here's the problem in our world. We have a world, if they truly perceive 
the, the righteousness of God, that they've sinned against God's law, and they are one breath away from a Christless eternity, one breath away from eternal damnation. Like, all they have to do is stop taking their, their, their stop breathing, and their heart stop pumping, and they die, and they're forever in hell. If they knew that could happen, if they understood that, they would cry for mercy, right? They would say, well, I need a savior. And so why aren't they doing that? Because they don't have a correct perception of God. That's what the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, restores. That Jesus is Lord. He's the only Savior. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough for God. Right? And the gospel says Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. Jesus is the only one who died for sin. He's the only one who could pay for sin. He's the only one that had the power to defeat Satan, sin and death, because he rose from the grave. And so I have a correct perception. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. And I am not. I give my life to him. That's the gospel. And opens up our mind to the truth of the gospel. And as a Christian, we heard the word of truth. Notice it's the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And we believed in him. And when that happened, at that moment, God opens our eyes at our conversion where our eyes are open to the truth of Christ. And then throughout our life, here's really what the renewal is. It's restoring within us a, a correct view and a correct perception of God. The renewal of the mind is a continual work of the Holy Spirit to restore in our minds the truth of who God is. And so just think back to some of those examples I gave in verses 25 through 32. Remember the one about, I think it's verse 29, verse 21, 9, where it talks about our words. So why is it that we're to build people up with our words? Like what's the truth about God that renews our mind? Because that's what God's word does. And God's words give grace. And you know what? God gave you a mouth, so you do the same thing. So when I walk around, I think to myself, and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I say, Lord, help me to speak words of grace to people. Or I think about verse 32, where why, why should I not have bitterness? Why should I forgive? Because God's a forgiving God. See, if you really knew God as a God who loves and forgives, then you would love and forgive. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. He who loves God, who, he who does not love does not know God, right? If you don't love people, you know what? You don't know God. That's what the scripture says. And so what happens with our mind being restored is that we have a restoration of our view of God. And really what it is, is that we can truly know him. The purpose of your mind, the purpose of your mind is to truly know God. And therefore, the renewal of the mind is to enable you to truly know him in fellowship and in prayer and in faith. Jeremiah prophesied that there would come a day when God would make a new covenant. It would be a covenant of his Holy Spirit. Notice Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. For this is the covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. For, here's the, here's the result, here's the conclusion. For they shall all know me. How about John 1.20? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So why did Jesus come? Why did he open up our minds to the truth? 
so that we may know him who is true. So we may truly know him. And it's not an intellectual downloading of data to our brain, right? It's actually, it's, yes, it's truth. It's those truths. It's that information. But it's also engaging him relationally. I know him who he truly is, and I engage with him in faith. I respond to him in that way. When your mind is controlled and changed by God's spirit with God's word, you are able to truly know God, which produces true obedience to God and cultivates true desire for God. Let me say that one more time. When your mind is controlled and changed by God's spirit with God's word, you are able to truly know God, which produces true obedience to God and cultivates true desire for God. And notice the renewed mind truly knows God. That's our thoughts. That's our mind. Truly obeys God. That's our will. And truly desires God, that's our affections, that's our feelings. Notice this. This is the restoration of the image of God within us. This is what was distorted at the fall. The image of God twisted, distorted, darkened. And this is now the restoration on a daily basis of God's image within us. We desire, we choose, that's our will, and we know God truly. The past few weeks we've been studying how this progression works that It's actually change takes place from who you are, that's your nature. Your nature orients how you think, that's your mind, which produces what you do, or we said before, your behaviors, and really that's your will, that's what you choose, and it cultivates how you feel, that's your desires. Now, I've left that one out on purpose because I wanted to make sure we could actually see that in the scripture and be able to study that, but this is so important to understand. You are who you are, and that orients how you think, which produces what you do, and cultivates how you feel. And again, this is the exact opposite of how the world views life, right? And views our inner self. Because the world views it like this. The world's like this. You feel a certain way, therefore you think and do something, and therefore that determines who you are. So, and that's an important thing to consider. Now, if you're asleep right now, okay, especially if you're a young person, wake up because this is the contrast that you're going to have in any college you go to or high school you go to or anything. This is the contrast right here between biblical Christianity and the world. Let me give you an example of that. This cartoon right here is a cartoon that is reported to be a part of the public school required curriculum in Wisconsin for fourth and fifth graders. The cartoon tries to distinguish between gender and sex. You know, the idea that the Bible teaches we have two genders. Like, there's two, are two genders. There's male and female, right? And it's the same thing as sex, right? Two sexes, male and female, okay? But this says, oh no, your gender is how you feel and your sex is what your biology is. And it's very confusing to kids to watch. But listen to, this is a quote up here that I put on the screen. How you feel, this is what they teach at the conclusion of this, how you feel, that is, do you feel like you're a boy even though you're biologically a girl? Do you feel like you're a cat even though you're a human? Okay, how you feel and 
who you know yourself to be tells you who you are. And there are a whole bunch of possibilities. L, B, G, T, Q, M, O, L, R, P, X, Y, Z. All those plus, right? And the point is, understanding this is how the world thinks. Like, notice that. How you feel. And who you know yourself to be. So how you feel. Like, if you feel a certain way, and you think a certain way, that's who you are. It's devilish. It's destructive. It's why our country is the way it is and the fact that we are celebrating the mutilation of young children based upon how they feel. And this is just one example to demonstrate that this is what is being shoved down your throats when you are watching movies and TV, when you're in the classroom. This is what they're teaching you. Not necessarily, I'm not talking about this gender stuff. I'm just talking about the fact that follow your feelings. What you feel is what is true. What you feel is who you really are. That's wrong. That's of the devil. But actually, what's the reality? What's the truth? Well, who you are. Your nature. So if you're a sinner, then you're going to think with futile thoughts. And therefore, you're going to do wicked things. And therefore, you're going to feel like, you're, like people feel. But if you are in Christ, if your nature has been changed then God can so change your mind as well that he can change your actions, your will, and he can change your desires. That's biblical Christianity right there. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And notice these three parts of the inner person. You have the will, you have the desire, you have the mind. And I said three because I left out conscience. I think conscience is another one. But primarily, we're focusing on the mind, the desires, and the will. And these three aspects really make up what the Bible calls the heart. Again, as we said a couple weeks ago, people think of heart and they think of feelings. But actually, biblically, the word heart, the synonym of that is soul. The synonym of that is your inner person. The word heart talks about your whole inner self. It encompasses your thinking. It encompasses your feelings. It encompasses your decisions, your will, your desires, your mind, in other words. And at conversion, God transforms your nature with regeneration. And throughout your Christian life, God continues to transform your inner person by renewing your mind. So, so the restoration of our heart, you could say it that way, the restoration of our inner person, the restoration of our whole inner self takes place through the renewal of our mind. So think about it this way. If your heart or your inner person had a door, that door would be called your mind. And if you were able to open that door and walk through it, you would walk into the control center of your heart called the mind. And connected to that control center would be the will and the desires and also the conscience. So if you want to change the desires and the will, and if you want, want to align and inform the conscience so that it is calibrated correctly, then you need to pass through the mind. Does that make sense? This is a good book I would recommend you read. Craig Troxell says the heart of the heart is the governing center of a person when you simply reflect the unity of our inner being, and when used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being. 
as composed of a mind, that's what we know, desires, that's what we feel, and a will, that's what we choose. Here's another one. This is uh, John Piper's book called Think, and the foreword by Mark Knoll says this, the ultimate goal of life is that God would be displayed as glorious. The way we glorify him is by knowing him truly, that's our mind, by treasuring him above all things, that's our desires, and by living in a way that shows he is the supreme treasure, that's our will. And so again, here's the question, how does God do that? How does God transform our entire inner person? It's through the renewing of our mind by God's spirit with God's word. So if you're following that piece of paper you have there, this is the means of renewing us. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the agent, God's Holy Spirit. And it's God's word. That's the instrument. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, the sword of the spirit is the what? Word of God. Let's try that again. The sword of the spirit is the? That's right. The sword, or I should say the spirit, wields the sword powerfully. And so we need, on a daily basis, we need the Holy Spirit to wield his power with the word of God. Think about a soldier. A soldier without a weapon is in a compromising position. I mean, we have sadly seen some of the news over in Israel and seen how there were soldiers in their barracks and they were sleeping in their pajamas and soldiers came in with uh, guns and rifles and, and those Israeli soldiers didn't have weapons. So, so a soldier without a weapon is really not any useful, any of any use for someone that is a powerful enemy. But also a, a weapon just by itself doesn't do anything. Like if I have a gun sitting on the ground or a knife on the ground, like, like knives and guns in themselves aren't dangerous, no matter what our world says, right? It's dangerous when a bad person takes it and tries to do something with it. But when a good person has it, when a good person takes that gun or that knife and they defend someone or they defend themselves, like that can be a positive thing, right? In other words, the point is this. The power is found in that weapon and the power is found when that soldier picks it up and he uses it. And if we are to conquer the deceitful desires in the lives of Satan, then every day the Holy Spirit must be wielding the sword of God's word in our life. And if you are spiritually defeated, let me ask this question, is the Holy Spirit wielding the word of God in your mind? In fact, do this with me. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, one page over, Ephesians 5. I want to demonstrate this to you in the scripture, Ephesians 5, and look at verse 17. Ephesians 5, 17. Scripture says, therefore, do not be foolish. Remember, the world has foolish minds, futile minds. They don't have the spirit. They don't have God's word. So don't be foolish. But understand, there's your mind, understand what the will of the Lord is. Where do you find the will of the Lord? Where's it at? It's in the God's word. It's right, it's the Bible. And then notice verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So for the world, when they 
feel a certain way, when they feel lonely or they feel sad, and therefore they think lonely, sad thoughts, they try to remove those thoughts and those feelings with substances like alcohol or drugs, or maybe they're just going to binge watch, you know, friends or something, and hopefully it's going to take away their sadness. That's how the world operates. They want to be controlled by those desires, but not for the Christian, right? What should control us? What does verse 18 say? We're to be full, or you could say it this way, just like alcohol controls a person, we are to be full or controlled by the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, verse 17, with the will of God, with the word of God. And here's what's interesting. Verse 17 and 18 of Ephesians 5 is like the reservoir of living water that pours forth the rest of the book of Ephesians. So if you look in verse 19, verse 19 is a result of verse 17, 18. So if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit in your mind with the word of God, verse 19, you will be addressing one another with the word of God. Like we will come to church, we will be with each other, and actually what will come out of us is God's word. Or verse 19, also you will be singing to one another. If you are in a service like this, and we're singing how great thou art, and you're like, how great it would be to be home watching football. Listen, here's the question. Is the Holy Spirit controlling you? Or maybe you don't have the word of God in your mind. You don't, I mean, you're like, how great they are. You're thinking, uh, I don't really know how great he is. That's because the word of God isn't, isn't saturating your mind. You're not thinking about the truth of who God is. Or how about verse 20? You will be giving thanks at all time. Oh, I'm complaining about this or life's so terrible. Well, you don't understand who God really is. And if you did, if, if you're, the word of the truth of who God is was in your mind, if you thought like Christ and you were full of the Holy Spirit, you know what you do on a daily basis? You would get up and say, praise God. Thanks be to God. He's so good. He's so wonderful. Or how about verse 22? Oh boy, here we go. Wives would submit and respect their husbands. Or how about verse 25? Husbands would love their wives. So, so if, if, if you're as, as a wife and as a husband, if you're full of the Holy Spirit and you understand the will of God here, do you know what your marriage will be like? It'll be like a marriage in heaven, right? Because that's what's produced by that. How about verse, chapter 6, verse 1? What flows out of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the word of God? Children will obey their parents. Hey, kids, listen up. You know why you don't obey your parents? Because the Holy Spirit isn't controlling you. Your sinful desires are or how about this, verse 4, chapter 6. Fathers won't provoke their kids to anger. If you are full of the Holy Spirit, fathers, and I guess mothers are included in this, but we're the, probably the ones that sin the most in this way, we would actually, if we were full of the Holy Spirit, we would actually intentionally disciple our kids on a daily basis. That's what verse 4 is saying. Or how about verse 5? Employees would work hard. Why are you a lazy bum? Because <laughs> you're not full of the Holy Spirit. You're full of your selfish desires. And the word of God does not control how you think. It's not changing you. How about verse 6? If you're a boss and you're not kind, if you're not generous, then go back to verse 17, 18. What does God say about being kind and generous? What does, what does God's word say? What does the Holy Spirit control us to do? And, and here's the point. How are we changed? It's by the Holy Spirit. It's with the word of God. So we probably should ask ourselves some questions. Are your thoughts, 
Are your beliefs, are your decisions, are your ideas, is everything you think, is it in submission to the word of God? Students, when you walk into that classroom, or other people when we watch the TV, don't check your Bible at the door. Like your, the scriptures should be the filter for everything that's coming in your ears and in your eyes. Does the Holy Spirit control every thought you think? Go with me to 2 Corinthians 3. I just want to show you a couple passages here. 2 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 14. Or verse 18. Verse 14 actually says that Israel is blind. That is, why are the Jewish people, why are they blind to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah? That's a question people want to ask, maybe. Okay, why is that? Well, this passage tells us it's because they're not believing in Christ. They don't have the light. The, the understanding of their minds is darkened. But, verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, that means that the Holy Spirit has taken the, the, the blinders off, we're illuminated by the Holy Spirit, we're beholding, look at verse 18, beholding the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? That's the splendor of who God is. That's the knowledge of God. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we behold the glory, where do we find that by, by the way? Where's that at? The glory of the Lord. It's found in the scriptures. We behold the glory of who God is. We are being transformed. That's our desires. That's our will. That's our knowledge. We're being transformed into the same image. So the restoration of the image of God within us from one degree of glory to another that's progressive. In other words, you don't become like Jesus tomorrow. Like it takes time to grow to be more and more like Jesus. And notice who is the one who does this. The end of verse 18. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Just a few chapters over. 2 Corinthians 10. So the scripture describes as Moses looked at the glory of God on Mount Sinai, the Holy Spirit changed his face to shine like Christ. As we look at the glory of the Lord and the word of God, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts to reflect Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what this looks like. This, this is like restoration of that engine and you're getting down there and you're taking it apart and you're figuring out how do you put it back together, right? This is, this is the, the real deal here. Because the problem we face is that our world is full of deception because we know we're not supposed to worry, right? But then it's Friday, and we hear that there's a world jihad taking place. And so we're on Thursday night laying in bed thinking the next day the whole world's going to blow up. And I probably shouldn't go out to L.A. or I probably shouldn't go outside of my house. I should probably lock myself in the bathroom all, all day tomorrow. So we know we're not to worry, but then we do it, right? Or, or we know we're not to have the opinions of a people control us, but then we sit in our car, and we think about those people, and we want to make sure those people like us, and how I can please them. The point is, is that we have these deceptions that attack us. And so look at verse 4 of chapter 10. How do we fight this? Well, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Okay, let's stop right here. This, what this is saying is that the answer is not the 10-step program. 
The answer to evil in your life isn't to do the sign of the cross, right? The superstitious, like, if I do this, Satan will stay away from me. Yeah, not going to work, okay? That's, our weapons are not of the flesh. We have something more powerful. And what is that? It's the Holy Spirit and his word. And so he says in verse number four, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, where are those strongholds at? Verse five, we destroy arguments. Think about that. That's in your mind. Every lofty opinion raised against what? The knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So 2 Corinthians 10.4 teaches that the spiritual war is a war in your mind with your thoughts. It's a war where the bad guys need to be captured and eliminated. Again, I'm making a reference to what's going on in the Middle East and Israel was invaded, right? They had these terrorists come in and what's, what are they doing right now? They're trying to find all those terrorists, to capture them and eliminate them. You have terrorists that are trying to, and some of us, they have broken into our mind. They're terroristic thoughts, you could say. Their ideas, their imaginations, their beliefs that are against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is what is true about God, and we find that in the word of God. If you allow those terroristic thoughts to linger, they will build fortifications, and they will control your mind. They will control your thoughts. And the more those thoughts have control, the more your life will spin out of control. And here are some thoughts that can terrorize our mind. How about comparative thoughts? Why don't I have the things that person has? We look at our neighbors, we look on social media, and we think, they seem really happy. They go to Disneyland like every month. I don't get that kind of stuff. Why don't I get to have fun like that? Or, or thoughts of worry. Like I said, you know, it's like, oh, well, look at what's going on in the news. I probably should just lock myself in my room and not come out because it's scary out there. What, what might happen to my kids? Maybe I should lock my kids in their room and just put them on iPads all day. Or how about thoughts of the past? What, oh, if I would have just done this and this differently 30 years ago, right? Or if I would have just, oh, if, this, if this person would have just done this, if I could have just said this, if I would have known this. Or how about self-loathing thoughts? No one loves me. God doesn't like me. I hate myself. Those thoughts are satanic. Those thoughts are deceitful, terroristic ideas in your mind that actually go against the knowledge of God. And so the scripture is saying here, you need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take those captive and eliminate them. And how do you do that? Well, notice in verse 4, what's, what is it against? What are those thoughts against? It's against the knowledge of God. Those thought terrorists, they hate the knowledge of God. So you need to send in the knowledge of God's sniper to execute those false ideas. Who's the knowledge of God's sniper? That's the Holy Spirit, right? You need the Holy Spirit to powerfully eliminate those ideas. So think about that. We'll just think about it practically. If you have comparative thoughts, well, I wish... I had a life like theirs, or there. Trust the Holy Spirit 
to aim the word of God at the heart of those terroristic thoughts and kill those thoughts with his knowledge. So what would be a, a thought? What would be the knowledge of God that would combat those terroristic thoughts? Well, how about this? With a comparative temptation, those comparative thoughts, maybe it's like this. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life from the love of money. Yeah, love of money. Money is not something I should love. Money does not satisfy. Money does not provide. Money does not um, satisfy me, make me happy. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the thought in my mind is this. You know what? I'm looking for those things to bring joy and satisfaction, but God is with me and he is all I need. How about if you have worry? I mentioned that a couple of times, so let's talk about that. What are the, what's the knowledge of God that you should combat worry with? Well, I think a good passage, you could probably already think of this if I were to ask. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Literally, anxiety is continually thinking about something. So stop continually thinking about that spiraling, those spiraling desires, those sinful desires. How about, what are you supposed to do? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what are you doing? It's the thoughts of this. God's in charge. He's on the throne. He's in charge of my life. God actually wants good in my life. He's doing good in my life. So therefore, I think like this, and therefore, I go before the throne of grace, and what do I do? What's my will do? I engage in prayer, right? So I think this is true about God. God loves me. God's putting good things in my life. Therefore, I pray. Here's my petitions, Lord, and I do it. Praying with what? With to say, praying with thanksgiving. I'm not, oh God, you're, I'm just going to tell you all my problems. I'm saying, God, here's my problems. And God, thank you. And how can you say that in the midst of a problem, right? <laughs> because you have a correct view of God. And what's the result of that? What's the result of that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, and here's the point. The point is a mind controlled by the Holy Spirit produces, produces actions of faith. You pray, and that results in those feelings of peace. And I know there's other aspects. There's, some people can have physical difficulties and other health issues. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the inner person. And this is how God has built our inner person. Your mind must be controlled and changed by God's spirit with God's word so you may truly know, obey, and desire God. So let's conclude with what are we supposed to do? Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world. So we should watch out for those ideas, those competing values and thoughts. That's really what it means to be conformed to this world, is conformed to the ideas and the beliefs of this world. But we're to be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, so what? So you can live according to the will of God. So what are we to do here? Let me give you two last applications. First of all, be careful what you allow into the doorway of your heart. Be careful of what you allow into your mind. The scripture says, Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the springs of life. In the 1600s, there was a Presbyterian pastor. So 1600s, 
long time ago. There's a pastor named John Flavel. And he was concerned about his congregation because it seemed like they were being drawn away by the entertainment of the world. Can we imagine that? What was the entertainment like in the 1600s? But there obviously was distractions. Notice what he wrote. He wrote this. Worldly cares and encumbrances have greatly increased the neglect of our hearts. We have so many things to do that we have not been able to care for our inner selves. Our minds are so entertained that we're spiritually dying. That's what he's saying. And if that was true in the 1600s, what do you think about the 2000s? No church, be careful, little mind what you think. I know that's not one of the verses, but we should probably change it for our kids. Because that's where it starts. And then I think the second thing is that we need to meditate on God's word every day. This is in your handout. If you don't have it, you can write this down. Biblical meditation is something that God commands us to do. Biblical meditation is continually thinking about God's word. I mean, that's not just on Sunday mornings. It's throughout our week. It's continually thinking about God's word. Considering who he is, that's your mind responding to him in faith, that's your will, delighting in him, that's your desires. It's the whole person engaging in God's word. So meditation, this is what I think God wants us to conclude with. Because the scripture tells us that the, the man who is blessed by God, he puts off walking in the way of sinners. He, he, he doesn't listen to the way of sinners, like he doesn't walk in that way. But what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. He loves the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. That means you have it memorized. That means with, when anyone talks to you, you are able to say God's word. It's not departing from your mouth because it's stuck in your head. How did it get in your head? Like, how is it you can pray and you can praise God with God's word? Because, Joshua 1.8, you shall meditate on it day and night. Do you realize that biblical memorization happens through biblical meditation? And this is just a side note, parents with kids and tree trackers. That's why for tree trackers, the kids meditate on God's word every day. They say it in three different ways every day. So by the end of the week, they'll have it memorized. It's the biblical approach to scripture memory. Some of you say, oh, I can't memorize scripture. I guarantee that if you were to take those verses on the front of the bulletin, and every morning you got up and you read those verses out loud five times, and before you went to bed, you read those verses five times. You did it every day till next Sunday. Next Sunday, you would walk in here and you'd quote them perfectly. In other words, biblical meditation leads to biblical memorization. But this is what God commands us to do. In, in the church of Thessalonica, Paul preached. They received the word with all eagerness. And what did they do? They walked home and they forgot about what was preached. No, they studied the scriptures and they wanted to see, I mean, they did it eagerly. They wanted to see if these things were so. Or how about 2 Timothy 2, 7. Think what I say. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And what does Timothy do with it? Put it in his back pocket, right? No, think about it. What did he say to me? Okay, what does God's word have to say to me? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3, 16. What you're going to see as you look at people's lives, people who have great faith 
are people who meditate on God's word day and night. In fact, you see this with George Mueller. George Mueller, the man who prayed and God did things. Why was he able to have that kind of faith? Because God's word governed his mind. And George Mueller said this, the most important thing I had to do was to read the word of God and to meditate on it. Thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, and instructed. This lady's name is Darlene Dibler. She was a missionary with her husband in 19, the 1940s to Southeast Asia. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. She was taken away with her husband as prisoners of war. For four years, she was stuck in a room pretty much by herself, threatened daily with death. She had dysentery, malaria, bed bugs, you name it, tortured. This woman was under severe trials. And this is what she wrote after that took place. She says, I reviewed the scriptures often. In other words, when I was in that cell, I was thinking about the scripture. And I, I, let me add one more. She actually found out in the middle of that imprisonment that her husband had been murdered. He died. And she says, I reviewed the scriptures often. The Lord fed me with the living bread that had been stored against the day when fresh supply was cut off by the loss of my Bible. He brought daily comfort and encouragement and yes, joy. What? Like, how does that happen? Well, it's the power of the Holy Spirit over her thoughts, and it's the Word of God renewing her thinking. What's interesting is she talks about where that scripture came from, and when she was a child, her parents and her church really had that as a value in her life to memorize God's Word, and therefore, when she was stuck over in Southeast Asia in a prisoner of war camp, and she was, had no Bible, had nothing in there but herself, what did she recall to her mind? It was the comfort of Scripture. And so she could have joy in the midst of difficulty because of that. I, I, I mean, think about this. Can we think about this, parents and grandparents? What do you think America's going to look like in 20 years from now? Like, what do you think your grandkids, what kind of America are they going to live in? Could there be a time where they don't have access to their Bible? What are you doing right now to make sure that that's something that can be in their mind now and for the rest of their life? So let's conclude just thinking about this. Let's meditate on God's Word. I mean, we should be studying our Bibles and not just getting up and reading it, but throughout our day thinking about it. I mean, let me encourage you. Take a piece of paper in the morning after you read your Bible, write a verse on it, Keep it with you throughout the whole day. Like, think about that verse. Summarize what you learned. Review that verse. In the front of your bulletin, you have scripture memory passages. Take those passages and review those. Memorize those. Meditate on those. Think about who is God in this passage. Meditate on God's word through sermons. And I'm not saying this to be self-serving, okay? Because I don't think it, I don't picture myself as the best preacher in the world. But I do think this, I think this is a value that God wants us to have, and that is to meditate on God's word through preaching. A sermon is like a 45-minute, <clears throat> maybe a little longer this morning, of intense meditation. And even more than that, you, for the last 45-whatever minutes it's been, I'll look at afterwards when we look at the time, 
But you have been hearing all this, uh, about about these passages, you've been hearing all this, you really have heard 20 to maybe 30 hours of study in a matter of an hour. So this meditation of mine has been crunched down for you for this time. And that's really the benefit of preaching. The Puritans viewed sermons as more valuable than even Bible study. Because they said, like, going to a, a, a sermon is like having a meal prepared for you. And you just stuff your face with that food. Doing personal Bible study is like going to the garden, and you got to pick your own plants, and you know, make your own meal, and that's valuable, and you should do that. But definitely one fills you up faster and a lot easier and can help you stay nourished. Meditate on Scripture. And so let me just encourage you. Think about how you can do that with after a sermon and during the sermon. Like, like I said earlier, take notes. Maybe afterwards when we eat here, talk about what did God teach me? On Sunday evenings or twice a month in the on Sunday evenings we have a time for preaching. Some of these interns preach. I sometimes preach as well and other guys. And we have a testimony time. And that time is really a time for you to think about what is God teaching you, not just in your personal Bible study, but also in a sermon. We have home groups where we discuss the Sunday morning sermon. And let me say one last one. Meditate through reading. We have this library back here. And actually, one of the best ways you can meditate on Scripture is by taking someone's book that they've maybe studied on a certain doctrine or topic their entire life. And you take that and you are able to absorb that within a matter of hours or days. So meditate on God's Word in that way. So your mind must be controlled and changed by God's Spirit with God's Word so you may truly know obey, and desire him. So here's the question. Are you meditating on God's word? What are you going to do today to have God's word be on your mind? Is the Holy Spirit truly controlling your thoughts? Are your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? May God change us to be like Christ by the Spirit through the word. Let's pray.